This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. I'm the king of the world! There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I am Katie Rich. I'm here by myself today to give a very quick introduction to today's interview with Jessica Chastain. David Canfield got the chance to talk to her about her role on George and Tammy. And uh, like several of the interviews with actors we've run in recent weeks, this was conducted right before the SAG-AFTRA strike began. So she had some thoughts on that and uh, expressed solidarity with the people who are about to go on strike and kind of understanding the reasons that the strike is still ongoing. There's a lot to dig into, so let's hear David Canfield's conversation with George and Tammy star Emmy nominee Jessica Chastain. Jessica Chastain, congratulations on your, I would say, overdue first Emmy nomination. <laughs> Thank you. It's really exciting. It's really, really exciting, especially that Mike was nominated, too. I mean, it's both of our first time. Yeah, I know. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, for you, focus on you for a minute. Let, let's let's get this out of the way. You've, you've been on quite a quite a streak. Uh, you have uh, won an Oscar recently. You're just Tony nominated. For someone who's been in this industry for for a little bit now, what does that mm-hmm. embrace feel like? What does that um, honoring in a way by your industry feel like? Uh, it's very meaningful to me. I mean, what's kind of amazing to me even this project with with george and tammy i was approached in 2011 it was my very first award show was the golden globes by josh brolin who's like you should play tammy Wynette," and it was kind of the beginning of me being in the industry Mm -hmm. so to kind of be on this long journey to have the most incredible past couple years and i have to say the past couple years it's been more of also me producing the projects which that I find interesting and the idea of like, as women get older in the industry, do we need to become more active in producing projects in order for us to have a place here because no one else will (laughs) do it for Mm -hmm. us? I don't know, but it is interesting when you just said that and I'm speaking this for the first time out loud. uh, So I haven't really thought it through, but the eyes of Tammy Faye, uh, George and Tammy and A Doll's House were all projects that I was involved behind the scenes and not just acting. Yep. I'm not giving myself credit. I do have that in my notes here. <laughs> and I was okay. going to ask you about that. <laughs> because it is, it, it does say a lot. I think it's not easy for anyone to break into this industry. And as you were saying, especially for women, uh, as they do get older in this industry, it it becomes more difficult. So I'll, I'll jump to that question, I suppose. Okay. <laughs> um, 
you know, how have you found navigating this industry with that sense of self-reliance, I suppose, and sense of fighting for projects, both developing them and then in some cases developing them um, for vehicles for you to star in? I mean, I would love to get to the place, though, too, where I develop a lot more that I'm not starring in. Sure. <laughs> you know, that would be – and we are working on that at the company. We do have other projects um, that I'm not acting in. But it's I don't know. It's a complicated thing. Um, you know, I'm, I was talking – I have a friend of mine visiting me right now, and she's, she's kind of transitioning into becoming a writer. And um, mm. I think it really – it's beautiful, I think, that that women are exploring other ways of, of creating their own work. But it also makes me a little bit sad that it's necessary. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm happy that I'm doing it. I love doing it. Uh, but I wish more people were interested in telling these stories and that these actresses wouldn't have to do that. Yeah. Have you learned anything about the business that's surprised you, perhaps, um, either in a good way or a bad way, um, beyond what you already knew having to do this to begin with? I don't know that I've learned anything. I mean, it's pretty – there's not a lot of changes <laughs> that I've seen. I mean, I've I've watched the industry for a long time before I had the opportunity of working in it, and I gathered a lot of information. And then once I caught, kind of got involved, it's – I've learned a lot. I mean, it has changed quite a bit. Uh, the whole Me Too culture, which I am appreciative of, the idea that you know there's now more resources for people who feel like they're in an unhealthy, abusive situation. Mm -hmm. um, there are abuses that were really out in the open. Now you are just gone. I I I, I don't know. I don't see anything um, anywhere near to what I used to see. Uh, in the past, which is how like people were treated and the sexist jokes and and all of that, that really has dissipated a lot. So those have changed in our industry. But yeah, I guess the most that I've learned really has been the producing side and the development side. And, you know, we've done a lot at my company and we started working in my living room and we just we just recently got an office, so it's it's been a, a a very steep learning curve, and I've learned a lot, and I'm I love it. Yeah, it's particularly impressive with these projects because this has been a time of of great upheaval in the industry. I mean, I think of Tammy Faye coming out and essentially you campaigning, and really the height of COVID through that COVID mm -hmm. experience. Um, George and Tammy was, as you said, you were approached about it uh, way back in 2011. It was conceived as a film. It was supposed to air on the Paramount Network. It ended up on Showtime. Like, it, it's interesting to me that you are, you know, as an artist, someone who has had to think really practically about the lives that these projects live as a producer. How do you, how have you found balancing that, like, in your head and as someone who has ultimately been able to go through with really creatively fulfilling uh, work on them? I guess for me, it has to be more about the experience of making them and mm -hmm. less about the experience of how it's received. Yeah. I mean, yes, we all want something to be received and watched <laughs> and recognized. That is, you know, a beautiful thing, but we have no idea what the world holds, what the industry holds. I mean, no one imagined a pandemic 
that was bizarre to really like I that Eyes of Tammy Faye really didn't play in the theaters you know yeah. I mean people weren't going to the theaters and that I couldn't have imagined that when we were in prep for that movie uh and this the idea that we've been working on it for over a decade there's so many false starts and stops and different cast and sweet Georgette Jones the daughter of George and Tammy it was based on her book and the idea that we finally got it made as a miniseries and it's being recognized and then starting tomorrow I'm not going to be allowed to ask people to watch it <laughs> yeah you know um which I'm supportive of because of our, I, I'm definitely pro union but again it's like you have no idea uh what you are embarking on so the the experience of making something has to be very fulfilling because you can't really count on anything else yeah uh, I will cut in for for context by the time this airs uh, the <laughs> SAG after will be on strike. Of course, you're a member of this union. I wanted to ask you about that, really in the context of this Emmy nomination a little bit. I wonder how this kind of recognition lands for you particularly. Um, it is your first, as we were saying. And you know, when you were breaking in, like most actors, you're guest starring on shows like ER, you were on Veronica Mars, you know, a ton of shows. What do you remember about that time as an actor going from job to job? And can you relate it for me to this moment that a lot of actors are, what, what they're fighting for, what you guys are fighting for? Well, it's a completely different industry. I mean, yeah. I remember living in um, Los Angeles and thank goodness, I was very lucky when I graduated, I got a holding deal from John Wells. Um, and that's that money. It was only like an eighth month deal, but it sustained me for years i could stretch mm -hmm. <laughs> i knew how to stretch a dollar and i was living in uh because i didn't i didn't work for a long time i was living in los angeles going from audition to audition pilot season i remember i get sent 20 pages to audition for a show and then go in and they'd be like we just need the first scene or you know it was just mm -hmm. a constant day recently someone reminded me there was an article in backstage magazine where a cast it was about casting directors and they said that someone said do you remember an experience they said i remember jessica chastain coming in hmm. during pilot season and it was all she had to do like six scenes and she came in and her hair was all messed up and she was kind of sweaty <laughs> and i was like oh my god clearly i didn't think about my presentation, it was just like, okay, what's the material? Sure. Because I was, I had my Honda Civic and I had my trunk full of costumes for each of the auditions and I would change at the gas station and I go into the next one. And if I got, you know, a, a guest spot on a show, that meant I made, I think at that time, $5,000 minus taxes. That's what, $3,000. Mm -hmm. And I would stretch that money for a few months, you know, mm -hmm. and then I would get the checks of residuals every time it played or where it played. Mm -hmm. And that actually sustained me um, and helped me work because it's very rare that an, an actor is given the opportunities to work in a, in a steady way. And so we've had so, so much advancements and innovations in our technology and in the streaming and in the content creation. And the difficult thing is the contracts never kept in line with the innovations that were happening in technology. And because of that, and I'm not far away from that 10 years ago, or maybe it's 14 years ago, uh, the people that are in their Honda Civic going from audition to audition, hoping to get a guest spot on, on something, that whatever, 
and then not getting residuals if it's going to streamers, that is not enough money to live for months uh, and, and take care of yourself and support a family. So we yeah. really need to get to a place where our contracts match the innovations that have been made because there are a lot of downloads and streams and someone's making a lot of money and it's not the actors that are really the everyday actors out there um, um, working hard and the writers uh, to make a show happen. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. Wondry's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip-syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segeith, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. I remember being at the SAG Awards this year and you won for George and Tammy. And, and I thought you gave a really beautiful speech reflecting on um, your time in college and a, a visit that Philip Seymour Hoffman paid, your college that really inspired you. I'm wondering amid so much uncertainty and you know imminent stoppage, what do you say to young actors today? What What is that message that you would want to communicate? Yeah, it's such a difficult thing because also when I was in Los Angeles, I didn't have a family that I was supporting. It was me on my own in a rent-controlled apartment. I lived very meagerly, you know, and I know a lot of people out there are living meagerly. So I think many people are going to try to figure out how to support their family with other jobs during this time. And if someone's able, I, I guess I would just say, do something every day to remind yourself of who you are and the art that you make. When no one was hiring me for something, and I know that's a very different scenario than a strike, but when I wasn't being, when I wasn't on a set working, I would do things like I go to the library and check out books, or I thought like, okay, I'm going to adapt Hamlet for a movie. I mean, <laughs> I was doing a, a donation basis movement class, yoga class. Like I did things every day to remind myself of who I was and what I should be doing. And I did, mm. wasn't waiting for someone else to give me value. And I think that's what we have to remind ourselves during this time where we're not going to work is we can be reading and we can decide like, okay, what if I write a one person show based on this book that I like, or this story that I like? I mean, we should continue doing whatever we can as creators 
because at the end of the day, we are what is interesting mm-hmm. to the public, not someone in a suit making decisions about whether or not a writer's story is interesting. Yeah. I, I do think of a project like George and Tammy in that context and the the artistry that you and Michael and the entire creative team bring to the series to, I think, of the subjects you're playing, these very tortured uh, and landmark artists. It's, it's, it's a really broad question, so feel free to take this however you want. But did the project make you think about your art and art generally in a, in a different way in making it and then, you know, talking about it and reflecting on it? Yeah, Tammy has this quote. She said, I believe you have to live the songs. And I really connected to that, this idea of living your art. And what does that mean? I mean, she lived her song. She didn't just stand there and sing something. Mm -hmm. She wrote about an experience that she was going through, or she sang about something she was grappling with. And as an artist, as an actor, I find that when I'm creating something, it's as though I am living it. I don't feel a sense of removal of that person is different than me. I mean, when I'm playing a scene, it's as though something is happening to me personally. Mm. When I did Tree of Life, I loved those boys. I mean, you know, those, I would get Mother's Day cards after we wrapped um, from them. I mean, we really had such a strong bond and we created something real and we lived it. We lived the story we were telling. And I think that is true to my work. I really live what I'm playing. And I think the reason why George and Tammy work so well is there's love there. I mean, I really care for Mike. I've known him for a long time. I was very protective of him during the shoot. He was. It's a very vulnerable thing for him to do a romance and to showcase his vulnerability in an industry that has typecast him against it. You know, they've really looked at him another way. And, you know, it was, I think that's the the beautiful thing about any kind of art form is that you really get to experience circumstances that are different than your own, but you walk away with a greater understanding of humanity because you've learned more about life. Mm, That's beautiful. Um, You mentioned Mike coming into this with the industry seeing him a certain way, maybe. I found for, for you, this felt to me like one of your most daring performances and interesting performances. I'm wondering, stepping into it, what felt most daring about it to you? Well, for sure, it was the singing. Yeah. I mean, I just assumed, and I've been attached to this for so long, and there was so many rehearsals and you know preparation for it. I just, the way it gets done is you go into a recording studio, you sing the songs, and then you lip sync when you're on set. Mm-hmm. It's the fastest way to shoot something. It's um, the way you know it's going to sound this is how it's going to sound. And it sounds best in the recording studio. That's the truth. Everything sounds better in the recording studio. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that when Mike came aboard, it was very clear from the beginning that was not something he was comfortable with. He wanted authenticity. He kept saying he didn't want it to be phony. And he was a very strong proponent to sing it live on set in front of the audience 
And the reality is 95% of what is in our show was from our performances live. You know, everything was set up for that kind of capturing. In my opinion, it doesn't sound as good as the ones we did in the pre-records, honestly. And we're going to have a record that is the pre-records that's coming out. But it's more authentic and it's more about the storytelling of the series. And to do that, to stand up in front of hundreds of people and sing Stand By Your Man for 10 hours, looking at these faces of these amazing background artists and know that I'm going to hit some bum notes in 10 hours of singing. It's a very vulnerable thing to do. I kept thinking like, is someone going to take out their video camera or their cell phone and record me and then post it online and then make fun of me? And like, I just, there was, it was so much vulnerability with that kind of exposure. But, you know, just in the same way that Mike was vulnerable in, in, doing a romance and really showing his fragility. I think I needed to show, I had to be gutsy and, and be like, okay, I, I have to be, I have to allow the vulnerability of performing in this way that I've never done before. Hmm. What did it feel like to wrap the the project? It was kind of amazing because we wrapped in Nashville. So we shot this in Wilmington And then at the very end, we were able to perform at the Ryman, which is the sacred uh, house of of country music. And it was like not even meant to be this way. It just happened schedule-wise. But um, on stage at the Ryman was my last performance. And we, we had me singing Help Me Make It Through the Night. And it was the anniversary of Tammy's death. And it was a complete coincidence. We realized it maybe like a week before. And I remember like that day was very emotional because this had been such a long journey to get this made. To be there on stage at the Ryman, to be singing that song, to have Georgette, her daughter there. uh, It just felt so meaningful. And and I said to the audience that day, like to all the, the people who, who were there watching, I said, you know, I said, please excuse me. I might be, you know, there may be some times I might not be able to get through the song. This is a very special day because we're honoring her. This is the anniversary of her death. And, and the song kind of like is very closely connected to, you know, help me make it through the night. And our, mm-hmm. and our version is, it's closely aligned to the, the end of her life. Uh, so it it was a beautiful way to end the series, but a very emotional way to end. Hmm. I can see you're still uh, emotional about it. Can... Well, Go ahead. I get like, I think I, it's just the way I am. I get, uh, I, it's hard for me to talk about it because I do get emotional. When something um, affects me, and again, living the songs, this idea of living the experiences it doesn't feel like it happened to someone else. It feels like it happened to me because I feel like I've lived it. And I think as an artist too, you work so hard to not armor up, you know, you want to be open. And so that means sometimes I do get affected because it's my job to be an open human being and to be vulnerable and to be honest. And so because I lived this very meaningful experience Sometimes when I talk about it, 
I feel it's like I go right back to what the experience was. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, my job is incredibly, incredibly important to me and incredibly meaningful because it goes very deep. Mm. I think of Tammy Faye, George and Tammy, Doll's House. They're all really intensely emotional <laughs> characters, yeah. performances, stories. Um, so I can imagine it's a, it's quite a lot to live with um, making that art a part of your actual experience. Yeah, but there's a lot of joy too. Yeah. I mean, the, a difficult one, like scenes from a marriage was very tough. <laughs> oh, yeah. And <laughs> that one too. And I, I love Oscar. But the reality is, I mean, our friendship has never quite been the same. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's probably healthy. <laughs> yes, we will be. We're, we're going to be okay. But I was like, after that, I was like, I need a little bit of a, of a breather. This was, you know, the kind of, there was so much, I love you, I hate you in that series. It, it was tough. Uh, but there's so much joy in what I get to do. Yes, there's a lot of catharsis, but... I think of Tammy Faye and Disco Jesus and all these <laughs> wonderful things that I've gotten to do and the the laughter. It's just I feel like I, I'm the I have the best job in the world because mm. I get to have these experiences that are so out of this world and feel like they're mine. Mm. But then I live a very quiet life. Right. I don't have to have these tortured things in my life, uh, I I play them and I experience them. And then I, I come home and I live quietly yeah. and peacefully. <laughs> Again, probably healthy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious, you know, with this stretch of roles that you're talking about, Scenes for Marriage is absolutely a part of that too. Really um, rich project. Does Not that does it change the way you want to move forward in the industry, but does it maybe just change what you're looking for a little bit, show you what it can be. Because if you talk about that 2011 period, you know, for people like me who are just getting introduced to you, it was super exciting. But I think now it's kind of like an, like an O. <laughs> and I imagine Aww. that's true for you too, as well. Well, here's the thing. I mean, this is, this might be controversial to say in 2011, a lot of directors were very excited about discovering me mm. and shaping me. Mm-hmm. And in a, like, I've had great experiences. Like, you know, working with Terry Malick was one of my favorite experiences of my life. But there's a sense when you're new to the scene as a woman, you're very interesting for the male gaze. Sure. And as you become less new, you try to figure out how you fit in the industry because all of, you know, a lot of the male gaze wants what is not necessarily for actors, but I've noticed this for actresses. They gravitate towards the new actress and actors age in the industry, but are still interesting to these filmmakers. Mm-hmm. So as, you know, as my career has gone forward, I mean, I'm working with Michel Franco, who's an incredible foreign film director. I'm, you know, I have another project with him. Um, I think I probably will seek out a lot more foreign filmmakers because mm. I think they're interested in women of all ages and of all stories and not interested in a kind of Svengali saying, like, I am the creator of this artist. 
she's an artist on her own and I want to collaborate with her. It takes a very confident filmmaker and man, uh, I think to, to do that. And so I think perhaps I'll probably start working with a lot of foreign filmmakers. I would love to work with, um, there's a lot of American filmmakers I would love to work with. And if they have projects for me, I will be very happy to move forward. But as, as I'm looking at my career, I think it's going to be a lot more of perhaps looking elsewhere, doing a lot more theater, and then also the stuff I'm developing on my own. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. Uh, lastly, I'll I'll try to end on a more uplifting note as we as we talk through <laughs> a difficult period for this industry. What to you is exciting about this industry right now? There's a lot of bad news, and I am really interested in your perspective as someone who, like we've been talking about, is has been through a lot of stages of it. <laughs> oh yeah, I've been through so many stages, and also I'm a producer now too. So it's like I'd like see it from all sides. Yeah. Uh, I don't think it's fair. I don't think the contracts are fair and I'm not speaking for me. I'm at a place right now I can support my family, Mm -hmm. but there are a lot of people who can't and the industry, it's just, it's, it's not right. It's not fair. We need to stand together and fight for a fair wage until we get it. And we can do that. I mean, we closed down during COVID for a long time. Here's the difference though. During that time, we still in some sense did press, whether it be social media, we were constantly going on Zooms and you know, we were still trying to, in, there was still some sense of entertainment. I think what the fear is, there's a lot of people who are making the decisions saying like, okay, well, at a certain point, artists and you know writers will get tired of not working. And the reality is, from at least what I've heard from my union, what I've heard from writers that I've spoken to, this is a fight that will go on for a long time until people are paid fairly. Yeah. And I'm willing to not work to make sure that uh, everyone is paid fairly. Yeah. Appropriately. But it makes me really sad, though, too, because, again, we just talked about George and Tammy. I've been worked, working on it for 12 years. And starting tomorrow, I can't even post about it, which is yeah. it's a it's a it's a shocking thing. But again, yeah. worth it uh, for for my union and for the writers union. Yeah. And, and a project you've been talking about for a long time, too, and been able to yeah. sort of engage with people on. I can understand it's It's a strange feeling. Yeah. I mean. Who knows if we'll even have an Emmys? Who yeah. knows if there'll be a Venice Film Festival or Toronto Film Festival? You know, it's it's a very 
interesting time, but a very important time. And hopefully it's not just bad news. Hopefully it's an exciting time because a lot of artists have the same goal in mind. And that's beautiful to see when there's such unity. That does it for today's episode. We'll be back on Thursday. Find us in the meantime at VanityFair.com, on Twitter and Instagram at VF Awards Insider. Uh, I'm at Katie Rich, and David is at David Canfield 97 Our editor and producer, as always, is Brett Fuchs. You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts.